if you're just listening in and you are the real perverts and I've included the uh, ASMR of Matt eating his lunch, you're very welcome. But uh, you're very welcome to the show. You're very welcome to the pre... That's on the OnlyFans channel. <laughs> the, uh, the, the beneath the skin, behind the scenes, uh, super, super premium. But you're very welcome. If you're hearing this, you are a Patreon subscriber. Thank you very much for supporting the show. You're very welcome. We have to come up with a name for all the listeners, but uh, we'll take suggestions on that. And don't forget if you share the show with your friends and we reach 100 Patreon subscribers, I will be getting a tattoo of the patrons choosing. Uh, I will be suggesting four designs. You'll get to vote on them. I will get one. I promise. Is this going to be... Um... Is this going to be a Golden Palace Casino circumstance all over again? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. You know about that? No. In um in uh, in uh, in the early two thousands, some woman in America who had no tattoos auctioned her forehead off on uh, on on eBay to the highest bidder. What? And the win- yeah, yeah. And the winner was the winner was this casino that was around at the time that kind of made its living like or maybe it's got publicity by buying loads of weird shit at auction like it had bought the pope's volkswagen and shit like that um the pope mobile they, yeah they put well no not the pope mobile the car that like he owned before he became the pope oh but they okay. also won but they yeah they, they 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 bought this woman's forehead for like a really an insanely cheap amount of money like five thousand dollars or something it might not even have been that much and she got in huge letters and big black block lettering on her forehead goldenpalacecasino.com on her head. Yeah, it's really sad. It's horrible. It's fucking horrible. Wow. She was like, yeah, it's to give my kids an education. But it's like, you're not even going to get like one term of private school for five grand. Yeah. Poor, 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 poor woman. What a shitty, what a shitty moment in history the early 2000s were. <laughs> yeah. the Like, apart from new metal, there isn't very much culture from the early 2000s that really is uh, near and dear to my heart. That is kind of Bit shit. I will not be getting this tattoo on my forehead. I will get it on my leg or something. I'm telling you now, I don't care how much you ask, I am not getting it on my forehead. But anyway, you're very welcome to the premium uh, Beneath the Skin, the show about... Mm, feel the quality. The show about Matt Lauder eating his lunch and me recording it for ASMR purposes. I am one of your hosts, Thomas O'Mahony, and as mentioned before, my other co-host that's joining me is Dr. Matt Lauder. Hello. Is that right? Yeah, on the premium, I'm just going to stop referring to you as doctor. You're just going to be Matt. Like, that's it. Um, Matt, what are we talking about today? Well, I want to... So, those of you who've heard me speak before or, or read anything that I've written will have heard me talk about this guy before because he's my favourite, one of my favourite tattooers from history. Um, uh, an English tattooer who's like kind of really, in many respects, the first quote-unquote professional tattoo artist in Britain. We'll talk a bit more about that um, as we go in. But his name's Sutherland MacDonald, born in uh, 1860, born in Leeds, um, grew up in Guildford, uh, and then really made his name as a tattooer uh, in London right the way through to his death, really, in the 1940s. So, um, yeah, like, I guess to start, Tom, I want to just, like, Ask you to like describe some of his work or tell me what you make of it. Because I I've had a lot of fun over the years. Many of the images that are now online of his work, I discovered uh not all of them, but many of them I discovered with the help of a research student um, about a decade ago at the National Archives. And I've taken 
a real joy over the intervening decade in like showing people pictures of this at talks that I've done. And I want to know what you make of them, really. Like, want to want to know what you make of of Sutherland's work? Like, I honestly, I think his stuff is so interesting and it's so cool. And like the fact that he was doing this stuff in you know the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, a lot of it done by hand is so phenomenal but if i was to describe his work and i'll be posting the pictures on the twitter feed as well you know if you're subscribed to this you're probably already following us on twitter um i'll post the pictures up there but really kind of ornate complex large pieces a lot of like full frontal like chest and stomach pieces a lot of back pieces like really dark rich blacks i actually kind of think his work is very similar to and obviously Matt is an art historian so he's going to enjoy this but you know kind of um is relief carvings the correct term you know you know kind of like cornice pieces you know the carved like heads with kind of yeah. floral arrangements stuff like that like really a lot of depth and dimension and very influenced I think I think by a lot of like classical painting you know in terms of anatomy his use of shading 100 really really beautiful stuff and like check out the pictures if not just google it. it his stuff is really really cool but anyway just yeah so that's a really good overview right like what i think astonishes me about his work um and even bear in mind we're dealing here with black and white photography so we're only getting a particular kind of version of this but it's just how like detailed and intricate and just kind of yeah, just the amount of kind of quality of, of detail and precision that he's able to bring out of a tattoo is just mind blowing, especially to modern audiences. I mean, I show this stuff to tattooers today and you know, there are plenty of tattoo artists now who couldn't do that kind of work. Oh, there 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 is there is plenty that could not do with modern yeah. machines and modern ink. Hundred percent. So he's. I mean, also, you know, there's probably a little bit of like uh, kind of clarifying stuff done on the photography, um, but from the images that we've got, and certainly from contemporary descriptions by people who saw his work, it's just astonishing. So he he gets called very very quickly actually after he starts tattooing the kind of Michelangelo of the art. He becomes famous around the world. There's articles in newspapers in London, of course, but in the United States where he travels, in Russia, in Poland, in Australia, in Hong Kong, in Samoa, in France, in Germany. Like he is known everywhere as like the best tower in the world. He is the guy. He is the guy. He's the guy. And unlike some of his contemporaries who also made that claim. I've not come across any of his contemporaries saying that he's shit, <laughs> right? <laughs> like plenty of plenty of other tattooers, even his haters watching. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, he lots of tattooers. Um, it's a time you know time of intense rivalry of in the industry, as we'll talk about, I'm sure. But I've never seen anyone say anything bad about the guy in terms of him as a human being or him as a um, as a tattooer. And I think that also speaks wonders. And I think the other thing I want to sort of say right at the top is I think his story, as I said, right at the kind of beginning of professional tattooing in in Britain and in Europe really, is something which 
really complicates again if you've got a kind of idea about what tattooing was like um his story both his life story and the kind of work he's doing and the way he's working and the way he's received in the press i think starts complicating what we might imagine about about the industry and about where it comes from yeah i would call him the jan van eyck of tattooing <laughs> yeah deep cuts where do we start with sutherland well well let's start at the right at the beginning yeah, so as I said, he's born in 1860, and pretty importantly, I think, like his family background sort of shaped the man he's going to become. So his dad's in the Royal Engineers, um, a regiment that he will also later go on to join, and his mother was a teacher. So they were pretty, they were, you know, they were middle class, um, they were pretty well to do, they were pretty um, influential. They moved to Guildford, uh, at, um, Robert was um, pretty influential in the town, excavated the chalk caves and superintended the fire brigade. Um, so well-to-do, and I think crucially for what becomes of the future of tattooing, um, after leaving the Royal Engineers, Robert and Elizabeth start a Turkish bath. So they set up a kind of hammam, basically, in, in Guildford. For those who don't know, what is a Turkish bath? Yeah, well, that's so that's important, right? So this is a time when, obviously, health and wellness and is becoming a big part of the cultural consciousness in the Victorian period, and obviously, also we're living in a time as well becomes important of great Orientalism and Turkish baths, which are basically kind of steam baths, saunas, really, kind of public saunas where you could go have a sauna, have a massage. It's primarily a kind of male space, although not exclusively. But it's it's pretty well to do. It's quite wealthy. It's a place where you can go and you know um, experience the kind of soothing qualities of of the local water and of the heat and of the steam. And it's it's a very kind of opulent, you know, Orientalist kind of space. And so that is is basically where Mac, as his friends call him, is growing up. He joins the army uh, in the eighteen seventies. He joins the Royal Engineers. Um, he works as a telegraph operator, which also becomes important later on. He uh, fought in the Anglo-Zulu War, so he was sort of fighting out in those British colonial wars in Africa. Um, and when he left the army, left the army in 1881 and settled basically at the garrison in Aldershot. So Aldershot, still to this day, a big kind of garrison town for the British army. And he was working essentially as a chiropodist. Like, can you imagine how grotesque a job it must have been to be an army chiropodist? Victorian feet. Victorian army feet. Ugh. Hobnail boot feet. Not wearing <laughs> socks, only wearing like foot wraps, you know, marching in oh, a various theatres of war. Imagine the toenails. Imagine the smell. I know. Right. So he's also, so he, he talks about starting to tattoo in the army in in 1882 so he's he's starting to tattoo sort of alongside his chiropody business essentially but he doesn't appear as a fully fledged kind of professional tattooer until about 1889 so when exactly he starts it's around about that time in Aldershot, but really he makes his name and i want to kind of put this flag in the ground as like the first moment when Tattooing begins as a profession in England, as a job, as a kind of service in 1889. So at that point, he's got a job. I guess he gets sick of feet. So 
he gets a job running the Turkish baths in London. So probably he's got family connections, um, certainly got experience on the job. And he's the sort of superintendent, essentially, of the Hammam Turkish baths on German Street in the centre of London. So German Street, if any of you have been to this day, and certainly in the Victorian period, it's a very kind of well-to-do part of the West End of London, full of gentlemen's outfitters, shirt makers, tailor's shops, cigar bars at the time, art galleries even. Very kind of well-to-do place. And the Hammam was this big, ornate building on the corner at number 76 German Street. And he's working essentially as the manager of the bar. So this is a place where, you know, I probably haven't got space to go into it here, but it's a pretty kind of, and it's been written about as such, a pretty kind of queer space, right? It's like lots of rich, half-naked men. Oscar Wilde's dream. Yeah, and there's lots, there's, you know, there's a really interesting queer history of this space. But obviously it's a place where, you know, there's a lot of skill on display. It's a time, for reasons we'll come to in a second, that tattooing is starting to get popular amongst the kind of people that attend the hammam. And he's obviously got some talent because he's done it before. Um, he's been tattooing it, you know, in the army. So that means clearly word gets about that he can tattoo. And so on the side, uh, initially in the evenings, he's like tattooing you know, out of hours. But very, very quickly, that starts to kind of overtake his day job, so to speak. And before long, he's advertising himself in the paper, in the kind of street directories of the day as a, as a tattooer. And so he first appears in 1894 in the post office directory as a tattooist. He's the first ever tattooist in the London street directory. Like he's not, I have to say, importantly, the only person doing tattooing. Um, there's, for example, a guy in Cardiff in the ports also listed as a tattooer around this time. And he describes even his early interviews of like others of his profession. So there are probably some guys like tattooing on ports and, and tattooing sailors when they're coming in. But he's in the centre of London. He's marketing himself, and marketing is the thing that he becomes very good at, to a particular client base. So he coins this term tattooist. Again, not quite. There are a few earlier examples of this word being used. But basically, he says, like, I'm not a tattooer because tattooer sounds too much like plumber or bricklayer, right? <laughs> And I'm an artist, darling. So he creates this portmanteau of tattooer and artist yeah, as a tattooist. Yeah. Tattoo. Well, so the word the word did exist already. I found a couple of examples earlier on, but certainly it didn't have a lot of currency uh, uh, before then. So they create this category of tattooist for him, and it's super interesting, right? Like, so that year, they every year actually in the post office directory for London, they list the new professions added in that year yeah because it's like you know it's, it's the 1890s it's this huge period of like professional expansion and industrial revolution and stuff so this is in that year there are 139 different new professions so they say such new such new trades as appear to be necessary out of 139 added this year we may select the following examples armored hose manufacturers chromotype gravure printers composing machine makers forgings Dynamo, genealogical searchers, glass sand merchants, golf ball makers, grain elevators, incandescent lamp makers, names and initial letters for marking linen, pearl and purcell fishers, radiators, rating surveyors, Spiegel eyes and merchants, tattooists. <laughs> right. So there he is in the street directory as the only guy to be a tattooist. And like, good on him, really, you know, and, and he, ta I think, so I've called him like the first professional tattooer, 
there was a profession, a full-time tattoo artist in the United States called Martin Hildebrandt, who was in the street directory as a part-time tattooer as early as the 1850s. And Hildebrandt sort of goes full-time in the 1870s. So America's a bit ahead of Britain. But McDonald really is the guy that kind of establishes, you know, if you want a tattoo and you're not in the army or the navy, the, the guy to get tattooed by is, is, is McDonald. Actually, I know what I want. I want to point out as well just how excessively difficult it is to research this man and not see Matt quoted. I was de- when I was doing my research on him, literally, I think maybe every second or third article had a quote from Matt in it. So you're really coming to the fountainhead here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't published enough of it. And actually, another academic recently, I was on a radio show with her and she started going, well, I've discovered this thing about something. And I was like, oh dear, I need to publish some of this. More quickly. I mean, McDonald's not unknown. I didn't discover him. He's been, you know, he's been known about as this figurehead for a long time. But mm-hmm. what I have done is piece together a lot of his history. As I said, I found a lot of his images, uh, which were lodged, interestingly enough, in the copyright library um, at the National Archives. Um, and I've traced, you know, as much of his genealogical history as possible. I've traced some of his surviving family to see if I can find any of his stuff. Haven't really been successful yet, uh, sadly. But basically, yeah, I, I mean, as I, like, I, I, I have put more, probably more effort into his story than anyone else's because he's so pivotal, right? Like, in some sense, he's in he's in the right place at the right time. So, as I said, like, you know, he's he's working in this place where there's people with money who are into like the Oriental, um, which includes tattooing, and they've got money to spend. And he learned tattooing. He was also, as I said, a telegraph operator, which means that he understands how to make things go up and down uh, with electromagnetism, because basically that's what a telegraph machine is, and that's also what a tattoo machine is. And he was the first Englishman to have a tattoo machine patent. So he adapted uh, basically a piece of equipment invented by Thomas Edison, an engraving pen, into a tattoo machine. Edison had made this machine to essentially, like, you'd, you'd use it to kind of go over a document with a with a uh, essentially an acetate or similar kind of screen, it would perforate it very quickly to create a stencil, and then you could use the stencil with an ink roller. So it was like kind of a late Victorian equivalent of a photocopier, I suppose. But again, okay. all that machine does is make a needle go up and down. And McDonald adapted that for tattooing. And yeah, like he's basically clearly a pretty good artist as well. He could draw. So he's got this. He's got this. Training in the Turkish bath. He's got the tattoo experience. He can make the tattoo machines. He's a pretty good artist. He's in this area of town where there's art galleries. There's people who are buying art, um, the kind of which would become the basis for his tattooing. And he's working at a time when everything kind of Japanese, importantly, is super fashionable. So Japan um, was closed off to the West for a very, very long time, 250 odd years. In the 18, late 1850s, 1858, the Americans showed up and said, hey, trade with us or we'll invade you. Um, the Japanese uh, emperor at the time, the sh- well, the shogunate basically were like, look, we need to sort this out or we're going to get invaded. Famously documented by the Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai. Exactly. That documentary. That's a yeah documentary. It happened exactly as it did in the movie. Tom Cruise is actually immortal and was in Japan. Yep. And again, that's a story I think we'll tell in more detail on the main podcast. But basically what it means is that everything Japanese becomes super popular and really quickly, actually, all of the kind of curios and all of the kind of ornaments and stuff get bought up by collectors and museums. 
And so by the time McDonald's starting to tattoo, you can read in guidebooks to Japan for English language travelers, like, hey, if you want to get some real Japanese art, like, don't buy any of the tourist shit, like, get tattooed. And so people are getting tattooed in Japan, wealthy travelers, and they come back to London and show their mates, and their mates go, where'd you get that done? Japan. Oh, I'm not going anytime soon. Know anyone in the UK that can do it. And I'm, that's basically how McDonald's starts, because presumably some of those people are going to the Haman baths. They've heard that McDonald's used to tattoo in the army. They ask him to tattoo them. And then we're off to the races, man. Like, he's able really to be the first tattooer in London where you can, as a stranger, go up, pay money and get tattooed. And yeah, like, I think he's also interesting because he starts to kind of establish an archetype of tattooing, which I think is really important. So at the same time as he's working, there's, um, there's also this thing in London called the Royal Aquarium. So the Royal Aquarium was opened, surprise, as an aquarium. Um, it was meant to be this way of like, you know, edifying the local population. It was going to be this sort of educational space. But very quickly, people realized that fish were boring as fuck. <laughs> Matt is distinctively saying, fuck fish. Fuck fish, yeah. So so the the people that own the aquarium started, like they got rid of the fish and they started, um, they started putting, using the, using the water tanks to like stage recreations of naval battles. And then they started having like vaudeville shows and kind of sideshow stuff. There was tattooing as part of that because tattooed, tattooed men and women were performing and some tattooers, one of whom, a guy called John Williams, had come from America. So there was tattooing there of a more lower class end. But McDonald was very specifically talking about himself as an artist, presenting himself in the press, like wearing a suit and a bow tie and as a sort of gentleman and presenting tattooing as this very kind of high end thing. He he was also like pushing the technology. I said not only did he develop the machines, but he also developed coloured inks. So sort of before him, really, um, tattooing was basically black or red. Um, the red ink, by the way, was made from cinnabar, mercury. Very bad shit to put in your body. Ironically, I was about to say a press interview with McDonald talking about his development of coloured oh, pigments. Yeah. Him saying that, oh yeah, mine is safe. The other inks have too much lead in them. Yeah, yeah. Did you also see the one? I mean, maybe I've cited this before. Like he also um, he was trying to find a good yellow, and every mineral he was using to make a yellow pigment like just fucked him up, and he ended up having to cut chunks of his own arm out because the yellow never healed. No, you have not told me that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said. Um, yeah, others of my profession use only black and red, but if you uh, look in my box, you will find carmine, sky blue, brown, purple, and green. I'm the only person to have used this last name. As a rule, it's very poisonous, but it's quite harmless. Of course, they all need to be specially prepared as the amount of lead in ordinary colours will produce blood, blood poisoning. He also, also coolly, he also was, because he was this kind of, you know, it's this very kind of interesting space. So he's initially in the basement of the um, hammam, and then later on gets a kind of custom built like studio space like on the roof. Um, here's one descri- description. One visitor recalled an atmosphere which is familiar. I'm reading from something, a, a speech that I've given before. One visitor recalled an atmosphere which would be familiar to those who frequent tattoo studios. Quote, the thrilling melody of caged songsters filled the air with shrill music. So he's got the tunes on and there was an odour of cigarettes and brandy mixed with a slight aroma of drugs around the place. So it's just like going to a modern barber shop then. Yeah. 
Drugs obviously means like kind of chemicals and, and, and hygienic chemicals, but he was using cocaine as an anesthetic. Much like Coca-Cola. I'm, I, but like yeah. what, this, this, would, this would have been past the area of opium being very prominent as well. No, wouldn't it have sort been? of around the same time. Around the same time. Like Also, you know, he's, he's injecting a grain of cocaine into the tattoo site. One journalist who goes basically says, like, Mr. McDonald told me I would not need the tattoo as he... It's entirely painless, but I got it anyway, and I felt great. You know, that's kind of the vibe. <laughs> the worst calm down possible. Yeah, but he's very, you know, so he, his space is hygienic, but also kind of orientalist. Like, he's got these kind of divans, like a Japanese studio. And, and yeah, like, he's initially tattooing these kind of sailor designs, these kind of, you know, badges and, and crests. But I think probably because of his development of colour and of his anesthetic and because of his machine which makes things quicker he's able to um start doing these huge pieces and lots of his photographs that people will find online are 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 back pieces and copies of salon pictures right so so kind of sexy french you know allegorical figures of nymphs and and uh you know allegorical figures of, of the night and things good excuse to have a naked lady it's not a naked lady she's a goddess don't you know um basically kind of pin up uh, but also he's doing these kind of very Japanese kind of things by taking flash, not when we can call it flash, he's not kind of designing flash sheets, but he's taking print sources from like Japanese prints, from Japanese books, from also like sporting books. So on, on German street around the corner, there was the gallerist of a guy called Archibald Thorburn, who's a really important ornithological artist of the period, basically like doing pictures of birds, very popular against the kind of, you know, the hunting, shooting, fishing set of the kind that McDonald was tattooing in this period and, and using those as the basis. And he'd often tattoo them directly, but also collage them and make these incredible collages. Um, as you talked about at the beginning, a lot of them, he'd have these features that he'd reuse across compositional designs. And they were, they were just amazing. You know, he was selling, um, he was also selling like subscriptions. So you could like buy a sort of season ticket. Uh, like he was charging five shillings for a small tattoo for 20 pounds for an extensive one. The equivalent of two to three months wages of a carpenter at the time. So if you think that's that would be the equivalent probably of like what nine, ten grand for a back piece. Yeah, round 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 about adjusted for inflation. Might have changed by the time this comes out, but Yeah, yeah shit. Yeah, that's a good point. The thing that thing that always like stood out when I was researching him, that from the the description of his studio to the tattoos he was doing to his clientele. It's very much in a stark contrast of if you said to someone, what do you think a tattoo studio looked like in the early, like, 20th century, late 19th century? Like, like it's the first, the first ever professional tattoo shop you could ever go to in London. What did that look like? Mm. It wasn't yeah. a little back alley. It wasn't down a side street. It was, I mean, it was, it was inside another building, I suppose. It didn't have mm. a great street presence, but it was inside this beautiful opulent rich club basically mm-hmm. and it, the space itself was this beautiful comforting sensual space yeah it, it, it was kind of it it was marketed i suppose more so as another flight of fancy or experience for people who could afford it that it's not just i'm going to get a tattoo it's you're going to much like a, you know a gentleman's club or you know, these kind of exclusive members clubs that it is kind of similar to the bats, I suppose, this 
extrasensory experience for those who could afford it. Yeah, that's it. And it's worth saying that even though tattooing is, you know, um, visible in society, it's written about in all the newspapers, McDonald claims lying, but he claims to have tattooed, for example, the king. Um, he didn't. <laughs> be king he, George the Fifth. King George the Fifth. Yeah, but he didn't. He did tattoo like captains in like the the, the in in his in the in the um, newspapers often, but certainly in the photographs that I found that he deposited, it lists the name of the sitters, and many of them are people like um, captains in the army. There's one image that gets circulated a lot by him that that I discovered that's now all over the internet of a guy smoking a pipe or a cigarette with a. It looks like a, it looks like a real rough dude. Um, he's got a sort of King George, a, a George and the Dragon uh, on his chest. That guy is the mm. son of an MP. <laughs> he's called George Edwards. He's like he's a posh boy. I'm literally looking at that picture right now. Right? Do you want to describe it for the listeners? Like that snake around his neck is fucking wild. It's just like it. it do you know what? It actually reminds me of the current trend right now of black patchwork tattoos of like real gnarly kind of like heavy like placement heavy black and the dude just looks like you know if this had been 80 years ago and he had you know maybe about another 20 kilos on him you'd think he was a biker right yeah 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 but he's no, he's the son of an mp he's a, he's a, he's a, he's, a, he's a soft soft posh boy um so that's the thing right so he's definitely got a kind of upper middle class client base that said t- the way tattooing's written about is always as a bit of a curiosity because it's not super accessible to most people, you know, there are some tattooers, McDonald's sort of rivals who are really trying to live up to him in many ways, Tom Riley and Alfred South in particular, who are tattooing at the aquarium and who have their own studios still in nice parts of town, but not at quite the high end. But tattooing is not in any any way kind of mainstream at this point. You know, what I think is really interesting about Mac is that he's able right, to basically kind of make a pretty good living from the 1880s all the way through, I mean, he he retires in the 1930s. So he's tattooing for like pretty much 50 years. And there's a period in the 1920s where there are some letters from him um, that we found in an archive in America where he's written. He was correspondent. He was a correspondent of the Zoological Librarian at Harvard, amazingly. So there are some letters of his in the Zoological Library in Harvard. But those letters say like, oh, you know, business is slow, kids today aren't into the kind of tattooing I'm doing. And certainly his stuff sort of fell out of fashion into the early 20th century. But he made a pretty good living as a tattooer like for 50 years and, and sort of did his own thing. He was in the baths the whole time. He didn't have any like notable apprentices that we know about really. Like certainly, for example, the, the tattooer, American tattooer Gus Wagner visited him or at least claimed to have done. And yeah, everyone kind of looked up to Mac he did tours in the US, tattooing as guest tattooer in, the, in America, and he has said he, he, he at least claimed to have tattooed, for example, members of the Russian royal family in Russia, which is plausible, actually. I don't know how true that is directly, but it's certainly a plausible story. Yeah, because Tsar Nicholas II had the huge dragon tattoo on his forearm, didn't he? Yeah, and a butterfly on his arm as well, I think. Um, mm-hmm. McDonald did claim to have tattooed him. Again, whether or not he did or not, I don't know. But like, <laughs> But that's the thing, you know, I, he he makes a good living, but he's he's a weird kind of anomaly because he there wasn't space in town for two of him, you know. There probably wasn't space in the world for two of him. Yeah, and it's, it's something that I kind of want to like talk about the fact that not just 
well, I think specifically his style of tattooing, it doesn't seem to have left a huge amount of legacy if you're looking from the mainstream. Like that, I suppose it has had influence on more kind of black, more kind of realistic styles down the line. But maybe is that because American tattooing kind of took yeah. over in the 40s and 50s? Yeah, well, even yeah, even in the 20s and 30s, really. I mean, the, there are, there is a generation of tattooers young tattooers who have got, who have discovered Mac and other 19th century artists of a similar quality, like a guy called Ben Corday, for example, who was an Englishman, but tattooing in the United States. He also did amazing fine line work in this kind of style. Um, Armand Dietzel, really important kind of progenitor of American tattooing, who was Danish, also worked in that kind of style, that 19th century style that follows very closely to 19th century print. So there is a kind of resurgence of that, you know, um, Nicholas York, an amazing American tattooer, Prof York on Instagram, who collects 19th century stuff, is a big fan of McDonald's, um, Olivia Dawn, who tattoos in Manchester, similarly. And there are a few others, you know, tattooing in Italy and various other, like some young tattooers have got into that style. But really what happened is, you know, McDonald's stuff got transliterated by the next generation. Actually, his most famous piece, this really interesting kind of winged figure, an angel, I think it's actually a an allegory of mourning um, is my M-O-R-N-I-N-G, I think, is, or it could be a, a goddess of victory, but my, my most plausible account is it's a goddess of mourning. This woman holding a star, that got copied in a more American style by Owen Jensen, famously by Burt Grimm, which ended up in a Cobalt card and ended up circulating. So, And if you look in the background of lots of those early 20th century American tattoo shops, lots of them happen to have photographs of Mac's work in the background because they were published in magazines and they've clipped them. So the style didn't really survive, particularly because tattooing as print culture changed, you know, as, as we moved from kind of engraved images to, to lino printing, you know, to the, those big comic book style images and that kind of style, American tattooing and then British tattooing in its wake become this kind of thicker, more bold stuff. And yeah, McDonald's just pretty old fashioned by the time you get to the 1920s. I mean, it's interesting, like, you know, he, 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 as I said to you, I think before we recorded, or like, he was, a, he was a real blagger. He was advertising that he tattooed all these people that he hadn't tattooed. He made up all these mad stories. Like, he claims, like, he did, his snakes are amazing, including on Ed, Edwards, we were just talking about. But he claimed, for example, he's like, oh, yeah, when I'm doing a snake tattoo, I've got live snakes that I pose on the model to get. It's like, no, you don't, liar. This is actually his long standing legacy is. He was the first, you know, self-promoting tattoo artist, you know. Sutherland McDonald would have been great on TikTok. Yeah, I mean, and there, there are loads there are loads of tattooers um, who are amazing, who we, we don't know as much about because they just weren't as media savvy. If Again, I urge listeners to follow a, an Instagram account called Scottish Tattoo History because the guy that runs that, Terry Manton, is doing amazing research at kind of pacing in together some of the stories and even just the names of some of the tattooers that we don't know as much about. We know loads about Mac because he put himself out there and he took himself seriously as a professional. He had this middle-class upbringing, so he knew, for example, to try and lodge things in the copyright archive where they were for me to go and find. He had an interesting relationship with the like uh, Scottish regiments in London, even though, so his name's MacDonald, but he was born in Leeds, but he gets sort of taken as this honorary Scotsman. And um, like, yeah, they, there's a it, when he dies, they they write a poem to him in their regimental magazine. So he's this kind of promoter, very very kind of promoter. But 
Yeah, he makes up as a bullshit. Like he tells his story. One of one of these tattoos that he does is of a, a sort of devil figure on a guy's back. This like really wicked, like winged, like demon thing. Metal as fuck. And like, more than once he talks about that in the newspaper. He says, "Yeah, the guy I tattooed that on, um, he was captured by like." pygmies in the jungle and they were going to kill him and eat him and they saw the tattoo of Satan on his back and they thought that if they killed him the demon would come alive and it's like he told that story like three or four times all about different people like he said the same tattoo was on different members of the British army or whatever he also claimed as I said to have tattooed King George V uh, even though he probably didn't George V was tattooed he'd been tattooed in Japan um, but no evidence that he was ever tattooed ever again um, well, he was tattooed in Japan and Jerusalem, actually, but no, no evidence he was tattooed in the UK, but Mac claimed to have tattooed him. There was an amazing article in one of the London magazines about another tattooer, and this guy, Tom Riley, who was McDonald's kind of biggest rival, I suppose, closest competitor. And Riley claimed to have tattooed loads of the members of the royal family. And Mac like took an advert out in the paper the next day and was like, no, you didn't. You liar. It was me that did it. I'm the royal tattooer. Big inspiration on your life, starting beef with every other academic that you don't like. Exactly, exactly. He also, also, I think, sort of interestingly, um, this advertising thing is interesting. Like he'd advertise in newspapers, and he'd be like, you know, four colours, and then like Riley would would advertise the next week, five colours, and then eventually it's like all colours, every colour, every colour. So clearly, kind of finding space in the market is an important, you know, important. Thing. And and he becomes this, yeah, like he's the guy you'll go to if you're an old school tower, you know. But as I said, by the 20s, he's writing to his mate saying, you know, it's, things are pretty quiet. I'm not in the studio every day. And really sadly, uh, like towards the end of his life, basically what happens is, you know, towing after the First World War is changing. So George Burchett is, start, is tattooing in London. I'm doing a much more kind of small scale, accessible style. He's tattooing on, um, Burchett's tattooing on Waterloo Road. So he's tattooing a more sort of public facing way. McDonald has been pioneering like tattooed makeup and rouging of the cheeks and stuff. But even that wasn't enough to really kind of make the bills meet. So tattooing had changed and, and he retired from tattooing. And, and when he died, so he, uh, he retired from tattooing. Um, the Second World War happened. I, I'm pretty sure he retired before the, the Second World War. The, the, the hammam where he tattooed was bombed by the Luftwaffe. And so if, if McDonald had a kind of collection of prints or machines or books, I haven't found them. If they've survived, I don't know where they are. Very little of his survives. There's, um, as I said, I've located some of his family and they have, one piece of artifact. I'm not going to talk about this too much because it's kind of, you know, they don't want it known about too much, but they have one thing that belonged to him. Um, there is in a collection that came through George Burchett, I think plausibly um, a piece of carving that McDonald did. And then there's also a, what's attributed to him as a shop sign in a collection in the, the Tattoo Museum in Oxford. But other than that, we don't really have anything that belonged to him. Uh, no drawings by him. The photographs of his are in the archives and some of his business cards are in America in that library, but there's no paintings by his have been found. Like very little of him survives, probably, I suspect, destroyed in the war. But basically what happened was when he retired, tattooing had really gone out of fashion and the tone of it was starting to change. And very, very sadly, when he died, on his death certificate, 
his profession is given as watercolorist. And even more sadly, his daughter died the following year. And on her death certificate, they give her father's profession as bathhouse manager, brackets deceased. So into the, I mean, he was still kind of, he still appeared in the newspaper, like tattooing in his, 19, in, in his 70s. But certainly by the 1930s... Time had moved on. Time had moved on, and his, even his family had clearly, I don't know, become a bit ashamed of him, maybe. Like, it's hard to know. Lots of, you know, he, he had children who, who died. His son, Robert, uh, who was his surviving heir, went into the army. But, like, really, he was out of fashion. His family clearly weren't that interested in tattooing. He didn't have any direct apprentices. And though his kind of legacy lived on, his name lived on, um, and he had this huge kind of overarching influence on on the industry, like, he did sort of fade away, you know? Like, 1937, he, he was cited as still tattooing, quote, without glasses. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, he died of senile atheroma, so old age, basically, in uh, 1942, a week short of his 82nd birthday. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Still tattooing in 1937. If he started in... In 1881, that is a that is nearly a 60 year tattoo career, and um, like God bless God bless you, Mac. Basically, like he was clearly a bit of a you know one of these guys that sort of quite quiet, kept himself to himself a bit, um, but was was talented, was clever, innovative, brave, a lot of luck um, in the right place at the right time, and yeah, like an absolute overarching figure and i think the reason i'm so obsessed with him as i said is that he overstraddles the beginning of contemporary tattooing you know without him without him modern tattooing in 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 britain at least looks very very different indeed yeah i that was you know fascinating he is an artist that i wasn't necessarily overly familiar with before we started this whole podcast but you know it's very clear to see he had an outsized influence as a as a subcurrent of tattooing and obviously hugely influenced like a lot of artists who took the principles of what he was doing and adapted it to their own skills like still today i i cannot highly recommend enough googling some of the images of his tattoos because they're like mind-blowingly good especially if you think about when they were done like a lot of them hand done very rudimentary machines the composition just the balance and overall design and the fact that he was one of the first to do it is incredible yeah and please when you're looking at those pictures like remember that they would have been done in color they would have been also amazing color some of his i mean the other thing that really blows me away about him is loads of his work is done like just in shading with negative space, like this really, really like brave shit that he's doing. I mean, he talked about even doing like what we call today microdermals. I don't think it worked very well, but he was trying to put like, you know, implant jewels into the eyes of dragons. And you know, was this kind of celebrity, basically, um, as well as this innovator, as well as this ambassador for tattooing as well as this just sort of super interesting dude and and yeah like you know god god bless you sutherland mcdonald basically yeah i i'm really glad that we've been able to talk about him because you know more people 
more people need to know uh, about about his work, you know? And if you enjoyed this episode, we will be doing more spotlights on specific artists throughout the ages. Um, we might do a, a one for one where Matt suggests one, I suggest one. My ones will be infinitely dumber than Matt's because I love dumb tattoos and dumb shit because <laughs> I am a dumb person. But thank you very much for listening and thank you very much for subscribing. Your support means everything. It helps keep this show running. And if you want to find us online, you can find the show on Twitter at Beneath Skin Pod. You can find me at Got It at Guineas. That's G U Y N E Y S. And Matt, where can everyone find you? Uh, at Matt Lodder, um, everywhere, uh, more or less everywhere. Um, and as I always say, s- smoke signal, um, carrier pigeon, uh, just shout very loudly and you'll probably get my attention. Yeah, etc., etc. Thank you very much, and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.